Father, as we come to your word this morning, we do handle difficult things, and we need your spirit to give us understanding and to guide us into the truth of what this means for us today as the church and your work in days of old and how you, the continuous and same God, are gracious and merciful to the nations of the earth. Lord, we ask that you would lead us into all truth this morning and speak, for your servants are listening. Amen. As part of our graduation requirement at Furman University, we had to accomplish 36 cultural life credits. They were called CLPs. They were somewhat of a pain in the nuisance of everyone who went to the school because most would delay their CLPs, all 36 of them, until their senior year. And they were burdensome. They were artistic exhibits. They were, uh, uh, they were music recitals. They were different kinds of lectures, normally extremely dry and boring and not on the top of the list of a young college student. But during my sophomore year, one of my friends caught me walking back to the dorm and said, I'm heading to a CLP. Do you want to go? And so I jumped along with him, did not even know what we were going to. We went to the music hall where the school had a very uh, reputable music program. And there was a senior recital. And at a senior recital, you would receive a CLP credit. And you had to listen for one hour to the recital of the music. I don't exactly remember which instrument it was. It was either an oboe, a French horn, or a tuba. And if you have ever played one of those instruments, I'm sorry, this is not intended to offend you. But in the next hour, we were assaulted by sounds <laughs> that I still am not sure I could even describe to you. I had never heard that instrument played in isolation from everything else, simply never heard it. Of course, I had heard it in an orchestra where it contributed to the depth and the texture of the music that was being played by the full ensemble. But alone, it simply sounded awful. It was off-putting. It was a difficult hour, hard to actually endure. It's important as we arrive at Joshua's chapter 5 and 6, which are one of the most difficult sets of chapters in the Bible, that we keep this in mind. Because modern readers of the Bible struggle with these chapters exactly because they tend to take them in isolation and abstract them from the context of all the ways and the works of God in Scripture. And we want to interpret it and understand it apart from that broader narrative. And it's like listening to a tuba at a senior recital. It can seem off-putting because we read hard things that God commands the destruction of a city of young and old of like, that the city be devoted to the ban. And so our burden this morning is to understand this command of God as it connects to all that God is doing from cover to cover in the Bible. Because what are we exactly supposed to do with this? And what, if anything, does this reveal about God? And as we seek to answer that question, it's critical that we not allow it to be isolated, that we keep it in concert, in the orchestration of God's works and God's ways as we see them in Scripture. And so as we work from that perspective, 
We'll ask the simple question this morning and go straightforwardly at it. What do we learn about God's judgment from chapters 5 and 6 of the book of Joshua? Three things that I'd like to highlight for you. First, we discover the cause of God's judgment. You'll remember that Joshua sent spies, or what is translated in chapter 6 as messengers, and we saw that that's perhaps a better word, that they function somewhat like ambassadors in the ancient world, that when an army was approaching to take a city, God commands Israel in Deuteronomy 20 that they were to send their ambassadors, their messengers to the city and to sue for peace. And so these men are sent to the city of Jericho, and they go to the house of a woman named Rahab that would have been somewhat of a cross-current of culture. It was a good place to discuss things with people. It was somewhat like a tavern and a hostel and a hotel. And there, they were disinvited by the king. The king actually sought to kill them. But they learned that the people of Jericho had heard of the mighty acts of God and everything he had done to save Israel. And they had also even heard, as we read in chapter 2, that the land had been given to the people of Israel by their God. They had heard the good news, and they were given opportunity to reconcile themselves to this God. But from what we know, only one woman, a prostitute named Rahab, did so. The king of Jericho hardened his heart, and in chapter 6 and verse 1, we gain a graphic image of that hardening. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. This could simply be read as as a statement of their defensive battlements, that they had shut up tight the city. But commentators will often point out that this is also commentary on the spiritual condition of Jericho, that they had refused the messengers of Israel. They had refused the offer to sue for peace. They had refused the promise that the land belonged to Israel's God, and they had refused the mercy of God, that they, like Rahab, could join with God's people in faith. God has always been for the nations. But there is a defiance that takes place here, a rejection of the clear revelation of God. And rather than receiving that revelation, the inhabitants of Jericho, they entrust themselves to their own idols and look to them for their defense and help. Jericho is one of the most ancient cities on earth from what we know, and it was a city devoted to the worship of the moon. And the inhabitants looked to their gods to defend them against this God of Israel. And these are the two causes. This is what happens in Jericho. It's because of the rejection of the word of God, which they had clearly heard, that the land belonged to Israel, and that their God had given it to them. The living and true God, the Lord of the land and the sea, as Rahab says, was coming. They rejected that. They refused the message. And they turned and entrusted themselves to other gods. And it was these other gods that gave shape to the life of Canaan. We know a great deal about it from archaeology and also from the Bible. And Canaan was not a pleasant place to live. Their gods and their idols required that children be sacrificed. 
And those children were regularly given to the sun and the moon and the storms to appease those gods in their anger, to try to promote peace. It was a violent place. It was an unjust society. It was a wicked place. It's as the world's always been. And for all these causes, God acts in judgment. Now, in the Western world today, we have an allergy to this. We tend to think it's unbecoming of God to act in judgment. But it's also important for us to consider another perspective. It's important for us to consider the perspective of those who suffer under evil and judgment, who have no hope for justice, that they are the people actually who only have one hope and that there is a divine judge who will make things right. And you see, friends, for God to actually be loving, if God is going to bring about a just and right world, he has to be a discriminating God. He has to be a God who separates, who calls evil evil and who calls good good. He has to be the one who's competent to do so. He's not in the same position as we are where we can't tell truth from lies and we can't tell cynical power plays. We can't tell when someone's obscuring the truth. He doesn't sit in the same seat that we do. He's not limited by that. He knows truth from error. He's competent and able to do so. And it is a loving God who loves the creation so much that he's willing to exercise judgment to free it from its idols, to free it from what seeks to destroy it. This is the cause of judgment that's happening here in Joshua 5 and 6. But the second thing we see here about judgment is we see something of God's purpose in it as well. You note that there was a liturgy taking place a combination of the army and the priest, in which they circled the city of Jericho. It's a favorite story despite its violence for children. I've never quite understood why this is so frequent in Sunday schools. And here the armies of the Lord circle the city with the ark, and for six days they do so one time. This was common in the ancient Near Eastern world when you wanted to lay claim to a city that the king would frequently circle it. And so for six days, there was an announcement being made that this city belonged to the God of Israel. And so they circled it six days. It's no accident that we find the number seven repeating itself so many times here in the book of Joshua. It's a very intentional literary play on Genesis 1-1 through 2-3 where God takes the formless and void creation that he had spoken out of nothing, and he begins to order and organizing it, organize it and brings forth beauty and fullness across those six days. And then the seventh day, he announces that it's very good, and he identifies himself with it. He rests, that is that he fills it and inhabits it. And so he brings forth order and beauty out of chaos. And there's something important for us to hear that in this judgment of God, he's actually scrubbing pollution and he's bringing order out of chaos and anarchy. And you also see that there's a reference in verse five. You'll see that there's a reference to a ram's horn. 
And here in Joshua chapter 6, you find this reference to the ram's horn that is only found in Leviticus 25 and Leviticus 27. And this horn is the one that is used to announce the jubilee. That is the liberation of the slaves and the payment of debts. It was a glorious occasion in Israel that was festive and joyful. And this horn was blown on the seventh day, just before the walls fell and the people shouted. And so God's judgment here is not only seen as bringing order out of chaos and disorder, but it's seen as a liberation. It's seen as renewal. And as we pull all of this together, it's so important for us inside of our modern context that we understand that God's purpose in judgment is not some silly reprisal where he's just a mad tyrant attempting to pay people back for snubbing him. God's judgments are so much more profound. And it's essential for us, if we're going to be good readers of the Bible, that we understand that those judgments are always intended to bring liberation, renewal, order, and beauty. It's the same in the New Testament, where we frequently find the image of fire connected to judgment. But in the ancient world, fire didn't simply destroy, fire purified. It burns off the dross. And so what we find in 2 Peter 3 with the fires that are consuming creation is the other side of that is a renewed world where sin and all of its pollution and all of its injustice and all of its evil that it brings into the creation, into God's good creation, is destroyed. And if we want to understand judgment, if we want to understand it biblically, we have to appreciate that judgment and salvation are the flip sides of a coin, that salvation comes through judgment. Because judgment is designed to remove the dross that we as human beings have introduced into God's good world. The other piece going on here that's essential to capture, though, is that you remember the promise to Abraham and his family. Abraham was promised that he would be a blessing to the nations and that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. It's one of the most repeated promises of the Bible. It begins in Genesis 12, and it goes all the way through the end. And many people ask, well, how is this a blessing, what's happening here in Joshua 5 and 6? And it's not a bad question. It's an important one. When Melissa and I moved to Arlington, Virginia, and we were able to buy a home, we had a small house on a small piece of property. And so for my time off, we had young children. It was most convenient that I adopted a hobby that kept me close to home and where I could work with my boys. And so I became obsessive about my yard. It's no longer that way in Florida, so don't inspect. But in that clay soil of Northern Virginia, the only grass that you can really grow beyond weeds is fescue. And I had a very weeded lawn full of crabgrass and every kind of highway grass that you can imagine. And so I began in the first year simply by spraying some things and then planting some seed and watering. But there were several problems. There were some native weeds there that were strong. And they knew how to grow in that hard soil and they thrived. 
And so I found that my efforts were actually fairly futile. I made very little progress in the yard that first year, despite putting out seed, despite watering. I did some research, went to the garden center, talked with some professionals, and they said, you're going to have to eradicate the lawn. What does that mean? (laughs) You're going to have to plow it, was the answer. That if you want to get rid of those strains of grass, if you want to undo the crabgrass that's coming over from your neighbors, if you want to keep yourself safe from all these varieties of weeds that are in your neighborhood, you have to begin again. You have to eradicate it. And friends, this is what God is doing in Israel. He is setting up Abraham's family where he cleanses a land, a location of idolatries so that that people who go in and and dwell and inhabit that land would be a blessing to the nations. Because if they had simply been mixed in with them indiscriminately, God knew that they'd be given over to their idols and they would not be Abraham's family who could be a blessing to the nations. And so there was to be purity in Israel. There was to be holiness that would become a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. And this gives us at least some approach as to the logic of God's judgment. That in a culture where we do have an allergy to it, where it is difficult for us to comprehend and understand, we have to allow that judgment to sit inside the deep and mysterious purposes of God, who's just and right in bringing whatever judgments on us or on any other. The third thing we see here about the judgment of God is we also see the mediation of his judgment. It's interesting where the entire encounter begins. Joshua, outside of Jericho, he lifts up his eyes and he sees a man standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. Chapter 5, verse 13. And then Joshua asks him a question. He says, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And this is one of the most profound theological statements in the Bible. No. (laughs) This mysterious figure who's there before Joshua, we're told that he's the messenger of the Lord's army. And as you look through the pages of Scripture, you'll find that these messengers of the Lord, the distinction between the messenger and the Lord himself evaporates. And this is an Old Testament example of what we call theophany, of God himself appearing to Joshua. And there is God before Joshua. And when Joshua asks him, are you for us or for them? He says, no. (laughs) I'm the commander of my army. And he puts the terms very clearly for Joshua, that he is not just allied with a Jewish ethnicity. And he is not against the Canaanites either. He is in his own cause for the renewal of creation. This is what he's devoted to. This is what he's committed to. This is what his covenants are about. This is where he is going. And Joshua must be reconciled to that God himself. And so as he enters into that presence, he's invited to take off his shoes because the ground was holy. He was in the presence of God. And Joshua was a profane man, as we all are. 
And Joshua must bow and worship before this mysterious messenger of the Lord. It takes us to a scene at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, where you have 12 disciples meeting with the resurrected Jesus on top of a mountain. And as they come to Jesus, they also bow to him. And it's a replaying of this scene. You see, because God's not for either side, God is for reconciling sinners to himself. Mercy always triumphs over judgment, as the Apostle James tells us. And God is seeking to mediate the judgment that comes upon the creation through this messenger of the Lord who's none other than Jesus. That he's the one who mediates the judgment because he, the judge, was judged in our place. This is what God has done about judgment. He's given a means for it to be alleviated, for it to be mediated, for us to be reconciled to him, for things to be made right, for people who can't make it right themselves because we can do nothing to pay him. We're indebted. But he blows the horn of Jubilee. He announces the new creation of all things through the death and resurrection of Jesus, that our judgment is mediated. When we look to him for mercy, when we confess our unworthiness, that in humility and lowliness, we look in faith to the warrior who paid the price for us. And that's when God's no then becomes a yes. When you become part of that company, then the no turns to a yes. And that yes is irrevocable. You're his. The judgment has been mediated. It's been relieved. And so in all the difficulties of a heavy passage, keep judgment in its biblical context. Know that it is God's means of purification of a creation that has gone wild, that has become overgrown, infested, polluted, and that God is so committed to that creation that he will not allow that situation to persist because he longs to renew it. And he's done everything to that, through his messenger, through this messenger of the Lord to renew it. Because in death and resurrection, Jesus promises to make the world right when he returns. And yes, there is judgment for those who refuse, for those who would tightly shut up their city and trust their defenses, trust their gods, and not receive the offer of mercy. But know that this Jesus, he does extend that mercy, and he welcomes you that God can say yes as you look to him in faith. Let's pray. And Almighty God, as we handle difficult and heavy things from your word this morning, we ask that you also encourage us with hope that we see your strong commitment, that in judgment there is salvation and renewal, and that our Lord Jesus has received every bit of this judgment that is due to us. And that this great messenger of the Lord, this mysterious captain of your army, that he is our warrior, and that in him you speak your yes to us. And so, Lord, we ask that you would encourage us with these things in all the different seasons of our lives. 
that we know you are for us, and that we would go out under that banner to make disciples of all nations. And so this morning we do pray for all of our missionaries who go out in your name to announce the lordship of Jesus Christ and what he has done to reconcile all things in heaven and on earth. And we particularly ask that you would bless our brother Raymond Clotaire, the pastor of Elohim Evangelical Church, a church here in Jacksonville on the west side that ministers to the Haitian population of our city. And Lord, for these people who've known great suffering and hardship, we ask that you would give them the good news and hope of deliverance that is in Jesus. Bless Ray and his ministry. Provide for his family in every way as they seek to build up this congregation, as they seek to plant other churches for a growing population. Watch over our brother and keep him. And this morning, Father, we also pray for our nation. We live in a complicated time. We acknowledge that. We acknowledge that there are things done in darkness where the truth never surfaces. But we take confidence, God, that you're the one who will one day reveal and expose all these things, that to you there is no secret hidden. We know that these secrets then leave us in a cynical place and we don't know who to trust. And we know that there is a willingness to use power in cynical ways. And we grieve all of these things. And there is only one hope. It lies not in any political party. It lies in our Lord Jesus. And so, God, we ask by your Spirit that you would endow our politicians and our rulers and our justices with a heart for righteousness, peace, and justice. And we ask, God, that justice in our land would flow down like waters, that it would be an ever-living stream. And so bring life from the preaching of the gospel. And Lord, we do ask for your blessing on our further works in the city of Jacksonville. We're grateful for our daughter churches. And we ask, God, that you would bless Christ Church East and you would bless Christ Church in town that you be with Dave Abney, that you be with Keith Dickerson, that through their preaching of the gospel, that your kingdom would expand and would break into new territory, that people would be reconciled to you. Watch over their congregations, and may they be sources of life and light in our great city. And Lord, we do pray for all who suffer in our community. We ask God that you would bless all those who experience physical and emotional pain. Draw near and be their comforter, be their defender, be their shield in the midst of all of their distress. Lord, we ask that you would heal those who are sick, that in the powers that raised our Lord Jesus from the dead, you would also renew their bodies according to your will. And Father, we lift before you our children we're thankful for all your kindness to us to restore the children of this church, to bless us with so many, and all that you've added to our number. And Lord, we pray that these little ones would grow great in your sight, that they would love you and serve you all of their days, that as they've been marked out by the waters of baptism, and as you have pledged to be their defender and their shield, to watch over them and keep them, 
God, that they would grow up in faith, that they would trust you, that they would be a faithful generation who would carry on the preaching of the gospel to all the nations. Bless them in every way as they grow up in this house. Father, these are our prayers, and we pray them in the name of our Lord Jesus, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.